Hello, and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies. Old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 5, Episode 8, our Season 5 finale, the end of Netflix. (laughs) And as we record this, maybe actually the end of Netflix, because they're Mm. completely changing how people access their program or their their app uh but today a complete unforced error uh i would say but you know whatever it's fine that's how it seems to me but we time will tell how how it plays out i don't uh i would if i were working for them i would be advising them against this decision but that is neither here nor there (laughs) this is our first interrupted intro uh but today we are going to be talking about Dunkirk from 2017. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, and that other guy who you already heard talking is my good it buddy. Me. It is. It is you, my good buddy, and the man who emphatically assures that the A stands for allies and not Axis, Matthew Watkins. Hey, Manny. Oh, how are me. you doing? Um, doing good. How about you? I'm doing good. Uh... Was my was my intro joke too esoteric? I was a little worried about this one. Nah, that's fine. I get it. It's good. It's good. I like right. it. Cool. So yeah, th- this is this is it. This is, we're ending our Netflix season. Unfortunately, we took too long to record it, so we didn't actually even get to watch this movie on Netflix. We did watch it on Hulu, which uh, I think for both of us was a subpar experience but yeah it's a it's very frustrating it's a i mean i complained about to you about it in our chat with the with the hulu experience with it like issues with the sound and the subtitles and the ads and there was like weird i don't know like blur stuff going on with it too that i had to figure out i don't know uh not a fan of hulu in general yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of the fact that Hulu lets me watch all of the NHL games without paying any extra money. That's really nice. Sure, sure, sure. But, That's nice. Uh, yeah, watching, generally watching shows and watching movies on Hulu. Uh, yeah, not a fan. Not a great experience. But in any case, we, we'll, we'll get the, you know, get through it. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Dunkirk here. What was, I think we said at the end of our last show, neither of us had seen this movie before, but what were your expectations coming in, Matt? And yeah, what did you know about the movie? I I had heard quite a bit about this movie um, and had intended to watch it. It's been on my to-be-watched to be list for forever. Uh, it happened to come out like right before school was starting in 2017. So anytime things come out right at that, like particular two week period, uh, it's a difficult time sometimes for me to, to get to the films and it kind of got put on the back burner. And then I watched a whole bunch of other movies in between and never really got back to watch this one. So, uh, I was excited to watch it. I know that it was, I knew that it was nominated for, I don't know, like a gazillion Oscars. Um, and won several of them. Yeah. But it's, and I knew that Christopher Nolan had done it and I've seen, I mean, pretty most of Christopher Nolan's other movies. I think there may be two that I'm missing off of his entire filmography. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, I was looking forward to watching it and wanted to see it. And I heard, you know, good things about it. Lots of good reviews, huge box office um, and just never got around to it. So I was glad to get to it now. Yeah. And did you, what did you know about the story of, 
Dunkirk. Like the obviously this is a historical movie. It's based on real events and as I understand it it's pretty factual. It's pretty true. How much of that did you know? Quite a bit about Dunkirk. Not like an expert on World War 2 by any means. Um I have done a bit of reading about World War 2 because I do teach a little bit about the Holocaust. Uh, in my classes, so I cover a little bit of that. I'm generally a little bit more well-versed on World War One because uh, I teach a section of a class uh, on modernism that deals specifically with World War One. But uh, I'm familiar with a lot of the, the major battles and things like that from World War II. Uh, I knew the general like outline of the story of Dunkirk, so like the idea of the evacuation and the boats being sent by Churchill to you know, the, the civilians to go rescue people and um, all of that kind of stuff I was aware of beforehand. I didn't know how the movie was going to address the historical stuff with the with the movie. Got it. So you had basically like a thousand legs up on me and I am <laughs> somewhat curious. So, I mean, part of the issue is like, well, it's like a trifecta of issues or Actually, I don't know if I have three. It's a multitude of issues. One of them is the way my high school history was structured was very bizarre because the high school that I went to had combined history and then they like switched the way the curriculum worked between, I think, between my sophomore and junior year. So I just never took like American history in high school. And then another part of it is the when the vast majority of World War II studying I have done and World War II reading I have done has been largely, very little of it has been about any of the armies or military engagement. Almost all of it has been within Germany itself and the rise of Nazism and uh, particularly how (laughs) it affected Jews and the afflicted there so that so yes so I had I didn't even until I started the movie I did not know like I could not have told you that Dunkirk was actually a place and I could not have told you where it was I think the first the first note that I have written down is where is Dunkirk so I yeah I knew literal zero coming in what a fantastic experience you know that's that's interesting that, that's really interesting. I'm curious, have you learned more about the history of like World War II in the Pacific Theater? Or is that also kind of a, a blank slate? Well, I don't want to say a blank slate. I know that you know you know basics of war stuff, but um, is, is it like what you're saying with the European theater stuff? Uh, what do you what do you mean by European theater? So the, the World War II was taking place in like Europe and there was that kind of part of the war that was going on. It was also taking place in the Pacific Ocean. So like there was the fighting between Japan and the United States and like all over the Philippines and all that Got stuff it. going right. on. Yeah. And then there was uh, also the there's also the African theater in the in the Middle East where there's a lot of fighting going on between like European powers using um African countries as proxy wars and things like that. Uh, 100% void. The, like, I don't know anything about any of this. Cool. Yeah. So interesting. It's a, um, uh, I'm excited to talk about the movie though, uh, because you know, the gulf between our knowledge of these things, I don't know, maybe it's just that I have a dad that was in the military. I've learned a lot about military, like world war two history, just 
kind of you have to pick it up to to kind of like exist in that kind of setting but i don't know probably helps i mean i'm guessing we're on i mean you really cannot know less than i knew so and i guess you probably can know more than you know but i'm guessing we're on pretty far extremes of this so i in this case i would be really interested to know from people what they knew if they haven't seen the movie before they listen to the podcast, what they knew coming into the podcast, or if you remember back to when you saw the movie for the first time, what what people knew coming in. Uh, that sounds great. Let's hear it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so so please please let us know, and yeah, that will be. They, if anything, if you knew a lot of stuff, then you can really make me feel stupid and <laughs> subpar. In like. In which case, a lot of my high school history knowledge was is subpar because our history classes just sucked at my high school. Well, you know, I think they uh, we don't need to get into state of like education in general and everything like that. But I think there's a lot of gaps to be uh, made up in history in general for a lot of people. But that's okay. That's a different Uh, podcast. Yeah, that is true. Mine is particularly unique, but. Or and the issues were specific to my school rather than because of any systemic issues. But, yeah, totally fair. Or at least in addition to any systemic issues. Uh, so, but then on top of that, this was so coming into Dunkirk's release, I had seen every Christopher Nolan movie that had ever been released and. Since The Dark Knight, I had seen all of them in theaters. When I saw The Dark Knight, I immediately was like, oh my gosh, I have to see every single one of this man's movies. Like This this speaks to me and vibes with me on a level basically unlike any movie I had seen up to that point, maybe with the exception of The Matrix. Like I just felt like the ride that movie took me on was specifically calibrated for me just in the way it like unveils information and I always felt I think I've said this on the podcast before like I it was constantly playing a game with me where I felt like I was ahead of the movie and then the movie was ahead of me and then I was ahead of the movie and the movie was ahead of me and it just rode that seesaw in a very um satisfying way for me and then yeah nice yeah i mean it's similar for me i i had seen i mean i saw batman begins and the prestige and so the prestige was the one for me that really like made me know christopher nolan's name and so when i saw the dark knight was directed by christopher nolan after having uh, or well i knew he was coming back from batman begins but after seeing the prestige i knew that i was really excited for it and then it kind of blew me away um when when the dark knight came out as well yeah i guess i saw i guess i've saw the prestige i also saw in theaters so i guess i had seen batman begins at home i think friend of the show evan had shown it to me and so then after that i started seeing all of christopher nolan's movies in theaters and Dunkirk came out and I watched the trailer. So it was like a couple things. I watched the trailers and I was just like, I am not really into this. Like this, I am generally not into war movies. And we'll talk about it a little bit at the time period. But like 2017 was an extremely stressful time. And 
it was because we were what like six months into the Donald Trump presidency and it's not like it wasn't a situation where I was like I can't go watch a war movie because it's too intense emotionally for me although I think there are a lot of people who that was the case for and they uh like I totally get that it was more just like I can't find the time or make the energy to schedule going to the theater when everything just feels so chaotic in my life and this move for a movie that is just not that important to me makes sense yeah that all checks out i mean it's a similar thing for me because i missed it in like the window when it was first coming out then i was you know it was just difficult to to get to theater you know check it out on streaming because so much going on ever since then and yes and this was despite the fact that evan was i don't i don't want to say he hounded me because i think he gave it a good like two or three tries of like you really should see this in theaters like this is an i'm like this was shot on imax this is the the way to experience this movie is in imax theaters and you don't want to miss it and i was just like yeah whatever (laughs) i i I probably actually should have gone back and look at looked at our chat logs to see exactly what i said because i do have them a a lot of them were over chat i think but uh i didn't so here we are and we're seeing it for the first time now which i think leads us in a little bit to our justification here similar to rrr when we put out the call for what should we cover on netflix this was one that evan had suggested and at least for me i love completing directors filmographies and so i've always meant to go back and catch the few of christopher nolan's that i've missed and in order to do that i uh (laughs) to make my silly little brain happy it is nice to start with the first one that i missed which is dunkirk and so yeah it was a good excuse to be able to watch it and then also cover it for the for the show yeah for sure and then additionally this is the the biggest box office for a world war ii film ever it was on so many like best films of the year list it was nominated for an academy award it uh for a for best picture um it was nominated for eight awards which puts it in like the top um like 20 percent of the films that we've covered covered and uh ended up winning three oscars so which uh ties it for second or for third against a whole bunch of other things uh somewhere in that range i think uh, my math might be off a little bit but it's in the upper echelon of the uh critical response for the films that we watch so it makes sense to kind of pack this on at the end of the season blockbuster that a lot of people watched that was very well critically received yeah uh it did not make the top 10 in terms of box office this year do you know where it came in um i'm not sure but it's probably like 11 or 12 yeah Um, it's it's number 12 yeah Yeah, that makes sense according to box office mojo yeah Mm, they're usually pretty accurate so uh, well, I just think I, th- I think they are accurate. It's just where the numbers pull from isn't always the same as like what Wikipedia says. Right. The other thing with the top 10 of that year is that you just had so many huge films like that was, the, I think, the um, I think it's still the biggest box office year on record. Is oh, is it? 
Yeah, so it's not a surprise. I mean, you had so many big things that came out the year that just dominated the box office. Yeah, the I mean, the list that I'm looking at now, it's <laughs> we we already have another movie that we've covered on this podcast. It was Stephen King's It was number six that year, mm-hmm. and the the other big movies. I mean, eight episode eight is the <laughs> uh, non controversial at sorry number one is the not controversial at all uh star wars episode eight the last jedi yes um universally beloved film Mm -hmm. um no criticisms by anyone yes correct and uh yeah the i mean the top seven are really just absolute banger well maybe the second one kind of sucks the second one's you probably like it though the second one is the live action remake of beauty and the beast yeah i mean it's okay I haven't seen it, so I have yeah, no opinion it's, other it's, than it's yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Wonder Woman, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, Spider Man Homecoming coming in at number five, Thor Ragnarok at number seven, Despicable Me Three at number eight, Logan at number nine, the eighth Fast and the Furious movie, The Fate of the Furious, and then Justice League at number eleven. So all that before Jeez, Dunkirk. Yeah, uh, it's just yeah, it, it's bananas to look at this if you liked summer blockbusters or action movies or anything that sort of fits into that category this was a good year for you for sure and i mean honestly that is probably a big contributing factor to why i missed this movie in theaters because like a lot of these movies i just wasn't going to miss and i cared a lot more like i wasn't gonna they're all coming out in the summer yeah yeah, so all these summer blockbusters that you had to that you had to hit in the summer in order to make. I mean, uh, I don't know exactly the timeline of when it came out, but I assume it came out right around the same time as Guardians of the Galaxy two and or Thor Ragnarok, one of those two Marvel movies. And so you have to kind of choose what you're going to go see. Well, actually, I missed Thor Ragnarok in theaters too. That yes. was that was the first. Yeah, so I don't remember. I must have just been like. I should have checked my timeline. I was probably like in rehearsals for something that just was why I was so crazy at the time. Cause I like, if I was rehearsing a show, then that means I was working my nine to five and then also doing a show. So it had to have been something like that, which, and uh, I should have checked. Oh, well, uh, maybe in, maybe in a postscript for our streamings episode, I'll, I'll do the research and then let people know as a, (laughs) I'll let only Evan know because he'll be the only one who listens all the way to the end. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, did you want to say anything else for for why we chose this one? No, that that all makes sense to me. Uh, so we've touched on a little bit. This movie was released in mid July, July thirteenth of twenty seventeen. I think that was actually the initial UK release, and then there was a wider UK release the week after that, July. 21st i think was the official date but this fits in right after so the limited release was the same week as the big sick which we've already covered on this podcast and then a couple months before stephen king's it so right there in terms of the the movies we've covered so we've we've talked about 2017 quite a bit but uh one of the things that's interesting is if you go to that wikipedia page for 2017 there's just like a ton of war stuff (laughs) and there 
the it's I mean there's on April 6th we had uh sorry on February 11th we had North Korea uh firing ballistic test missiles across the Sea of Japan on April 6th we had the US military launch 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles at Syria because we suspected a chemical weapons attack and the, it just continues from there. Some of them I remembered, some of them I did not, and this was only six years ago, so just really awful time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't good. Lots of wars going on, lots of, um, uh, lots of, I mean, it was a constant state of, worrying about you know um who's going to be attacking who is there going to be war starting up between north korea and whoever uh so many acts of aggression and then so many like russian things saber rattling and all that stuff that was going on and just being uh added onto the fire with donald trump um trying to i don't know like little man syndrome through all of these all of these wars and battles and threats and um just uh, it was stressful, a lot of stressful, you know, nights wondering if the if that was the if there's going to be nuclear weapons dropped or something. So, yeah, and I think Fun. it's also important to remember there was this very strange thing when you were felt like you were viewing works of art, whether they be books or theater or movies that felt like they were time capsuled because they were created in a time that was so felt so vastly different from the time that we were in when we would have been watching it. Like the parks and recreation syndrome, um, watching that show. I just, I have never gone back and watched that show uh, and finished it because I watch it now and I just, it's, it feels so dated after uh, 2017. Mm. I I have not had that issue with Parks and Rec, but I have done it with um, West Wing, which is a bit of a different situation. Or I guess we yeah. were in the midst of our West Wing rewatch when the 2016 election happened. But in that case, it's sort of, yeah, you have to feel like it's the <laughs> you're watching this like fantasy utopia of how you want government to act or how you want uh. government to feel. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You had one teeny tiny event that that you wanted to mention here. Yeah, it was a it was a little one. Um, there was you know the whole year taken up by this thing called Brexit. Um, Ooh. with yeah, I mean, so technically, like the vote for Brexit for breakfast, the vote for Brexit happened the year previously. <laughs> I vote yes on breakfast. <laughs> Me too. Uh, not on Brexit, but it, technically the the Brexit vote happened the year before, and it was like all the negotiations and planning for everything that was going on for Brexit during 2017. But you know, with all the the Trump news that was going on in the U.S., uh, there was still all this Brexit news that was constantly breaking through at the time period, and. In particular, regarding this film, it was a major British release with a lot of British folks involved with it. And essentially, everyone that reviewed it made it um, an allegory about Brexit in whichever way they were leaning with the film. So if they liked it and they were 
Remain, they were about how it was about Remain, and if they liked it and they were leave, they were they said it was about how how Britain should leave and vice versa, all that kind of stuff. There was a meta analysis that I read um, from a scholar about this film in particular and the reviews and connecting Brexit. Um, and he reviewed something like, you know, 250 reviews. And uh, there were like two of them that didn't mention Brexit. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So going back and looking at concurrent reviews at the time period, I went through some of them and it's the same thing. Just everybody is talking about Brexit in relation to this film. And the this one of the reasons why this film was so made so much money is because Leave voters really, really liked this one. And it's not that Remain voters didn't. It was just like the the Leave voters just were, you know, like changing their profile pictures to Dunkirk pictures and all that kind of stuff. Sort of like it, it reminds me of this year in 2022 when Top Gun Maverick came out and like all the conservatives were like, ah, look, it's a, you know, all this is about conservatism and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. It's it's kind of weird to, to look at that. I kind of think it's interesting to look at this film five years later, kind of detached from the immediacy of Brexit and what was going on and thinking of it a, a, a kind of outside of that, because when they made the film, they made it before Brexit was happening. Like they made this right, film before even the vote. Yeah. yeah. And so, so like they weren't trying to comment on Brexit as they were making it, but everybody made it about that anyway, after they watched it. So I think it's interesting to go back and see it as a piece of uh, history and cinema um from that perspective there was nothing like i didn't think about brexit one minute when i was watching this movie i uh <laughs> yeah me either so uh, it wasn't until i finished who, it go ahead sorry uh anyone who listens who listens to the podcast as we intend it now we just spoiled it for them like now they're all they're gonna think about is brexit Oh, sorry, everybody. Well, that's how it goes. Uh, sorry. I, I don't think it'll <laughs> ruin your, your watching experience. No, no. So, and then uh, I had attached in our show notes this uh, this this tweet that was, you know, uh, from last week in 2023, you know, six years after all this Brexit business. And it was a Golden Socks evaluation that every major economy in the world is looking to avoid recession this year, except for one. And that's the UK pretty much just because of Brexit. So, you know, uh, some perspective on where this whole this whole thing has been headed over the past six years. Sorry, you you misspoke. I, the tweet says all major economies except the UK now look likely to avoid recession this year. That's what I said, right? Uh, you said, mm, I guess there's literally a recording so we can check. But I think you said are looking to avoid a recession, implying that the UK was oh, I get in you. good standing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we're going to leave this in, and people can either hear me mishearing you or hear me No, I uh, think that's delightful, yeah. It. Yeah, it's a... Everybody's avoiding a recession, basically, um, unless... Except for the UK. So, <laughs> yeah. Delightful. Um, I don't know. It's It's wild. So... Yeah, it is. And then the only other event that I had pulled, this happens a month after this movie came out, but uh, that's the 
date it came out in the UK, so I think it would have been a little later in the US. And on August 12th was the Unite the Right rally, where there was that van that drove through the throng of pedestrians and ended up killing a woman. So this was one of the bi- one of the biggest events on 2017. I can't remember if we discussed it for the other movies but that stuck out to me as like oh yes i remember that flashpoint in this horrible awful year yeah and i mean relevant to dunkirk because you got a bunch of nazis you know um, yep murdering people in groups so there you go yep (laughs) the yeah the the parallels are are stark shall we move excellent and talk about our personnel and stats here yeah, let's get let's go on to the people involved with this film. So, so the budget for this film was, uh, you know, one hundred and fifty million dollars. It's a big budget film. A massive <laughs> it is a budget. Big budget film. Yeah, this is this is one of the biggest that we've covered. Um, it is. I mean, we've covered some big budget films, but this is this is near the top. It's up there with you know like. Um, dune or the matrix uh resurrections or like inside out um casino royale it's it's on the level of those kinds of massive budget films do you do you have handy what number it is for us Uh, i don't have handy what number it is but it looks like it's roughly like let's see me doing quick math here uh like four or five somewhere in that range yeah that makes sense to me it's really it's really really massive yeah um a lot of money um it also made a lot of money it made 527 million dollars relative to return on investment that's kind of small but it's only a 3.51 um multiplier on return on investment which puts it near the bottom of the films that we've covered but also, like keeping in mind that it's the the most money ever made by a World War Two movie or by a war film in general, just any war film. Um, mm. It's it's at the box office. It was a smashing success. Yeah. And it was a success at the Academy Awards. As you said, this is mm-hmm. in the upper echelon for nominations for the films that we've covered. It got eight nominations so it got uh it got the best picture nomination this was the shape of water year and it was looks like there were 10 nominations i feel like this wasn't a hard year of 10 so i think everything that got in had to had to get there based on a certain threshold but i don't know that for sure it got a best director nomination it got a Best Original Score nomination, lost to The Shape of Water by Alexander Desplat. It got the nomination and won for uh, sound editing and sound mixing, and then got a nomination for production design, a nomination for cinematography, which it lost to Roger Deakins for Blade Runner 2049, and then the other Academy Award that it won, it won editing, beating Baby Driver, I, Tonya, Shape of Water, and uh, Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah. The the win for editing makes sense to me, and we'll probably talk about the editing as we get in, because I know that it, it's, you know, it's complicated. But just looking through over the history of this film and the production of it, 
they had like 60 hours of footage that they shot that they had to to edit down into a two hour story. Um, and it's a very like complicated story that they're trying to tell and trying to take uh, all the footage that they had with very little like sequential storytelling in the footage that they captured and trying to wrangle that down into into a two hour film for people to watch. I just it blows me away that they were able to pull it off with the editing that they did. Yeah, it, and it's extremely flashy editing. Like it's a movie where you think about the editing, which is something yes. that the Academy tends to reward. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Christopher Nolan here. This is our I think a lot of people know who Christopher Nolan is, but uh, I was sort of looking at the list of so-called auteurs, like on the list of the greatest auteurs of all time, and almost every list has Christopher Nolan on that list. A lot of the other people, we've covered their films. It also had Stanley Kubrick, also had Steven Spielberg, also a lot of them had Alfred Hitchcock, some did not, but I'm guessing that was just like recency bias. Is there anyone I'm missing? He might have some, like, Ryan De Palma on there. I doubt he'd make it onto a lot of lists, but mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that some people would mention him. Um, and then the other ones... I mean, what's his name? Robert Eggers? Um, is that his name? Yeah. Sure. Robert Eggers. Uh, yeah. He's only had three films come out, so he probably wasn't showing up on the list. But He was not, but I didn't... But people would probably put him on there at this point. I mean, I think, yeah, there's a whole class of, like new filmmakers who are likely to be on that list um robert eggers oh, like the coen mind, brothers probably uh they were not on the list but it does seem like they should have been uh yeah and i think like jordan peele will be on that list as well right so just you know one of those one of those names that whenever one of his films comes out it's going to get a lot of attention and he has become established as a top filmmaker top director yeah like the the top billing on his films is him the the director um it's not whatever you know star actor is performing in whatever the thing is Uh, uh, we have coming out very soon here in the u.s um the in 2023 the oppenheimer film and you know Playing the title role of Oppenheimer is Cillian Murphy, who's a, a well-regarded you know actor that's been around for a long time and been in a lot of Christopher Nolan's films. But the advertising for this and the the trailers have not even really shown the actors' faces. It's like just uh, shows some of like the atomic bomb exploding and the time ticking down, and then Christopher Nolan's name, and that's that's the draw for for his films. Yeah, and I think it makes sense. Like you look at the his filmography and basically you know, there's a lot of discussion about almost all of his films. Not everyone hits I'd say a lot of them hit with a lot of people and a lot of them don't hit with a lot of people, but almost always they're inventive and original and feel fresh to people. So I'll just run down his films quickly. I think most people know the vast majority of them, but just in case there's some you forgot, his uh, debut was following in 1998, which is probably the one that people have seen the least. But I think this film like really 
holds up, I th- or at least it did when I watched it a decade and a half ago. It's also the only one I haven't seen. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man, I got that one on you. Uh, Memento in 2000, which became pretty famous for its, <laughs> I guess, a lot of the stuff that Christopher Nolan is going to become famous for with its... Uh, variable timeline and confusing Mm -hmm. timeline insomnia in 2002 and then the beginning of the batman trilogy batman begins in 2005 the prestige in 2006 the dark knight in 2008 inception in 2010 the dark knight rises the conclusion of the trilogy in 2012 interstellar in 2014 dunkirk as we're talking about now in 2017 and then tenet in 2020 Oh, so I guess I lied when I said Dunkirk was the first one I had missed, because I also haven't seen Interstellar. The two movies of his I haven't seen now are Interstellar and Tenet. Well, you should watch Interstellar. That film's great. I'm going to watch both Interstellar and Tenet before Oppenheimer comes out, for sure. uh, Yeah, that's a good idea. I don't know, like, for me, basically all of these films have hit, and I know they don't hit for everybody, specifically, like, um, The Dark Knight Rises and Tenet, I know, are not as popular with a lot of folks, and some uh, of his films are seen as kind of like, you know, like Inception or, um, uh, like, The Prestige, maybe, or Batman Begins are seen as more... Uh, less of, like, his style and more as, like, popcorn flicks. I don't think that I would necessarily agree with that. Um, but I've enjoyed every Christopher Nolan film that I've seen, even the ones that people don't consider to be as good. Yeah. And I think the, even if they don't hit for you, they, I think all of them have a lot of value and you're not really ever going to feel like you wasted your time watching it, which I know is something that you and I don't generally feel about the movies we watch, but I think a lot of people do. It's also worth worth mentioning mentioning the worth mentioning that he wrote the he was a writer on Man of Steel in between. Oh, Night that's Rises right, I forgot about that. So, yeah, yeah, not a director, but still, you know, involved with that. Yeah, and Christopher Nolan, it's he's a really fascinating director. He takes a very different style to cinema than a lot of other directors. He. For one thing, he has this this huge like theatrical um, ethos where he focuses the filmmaking very much on the in theater experience to the detriment at the of the home watching experience, which yes. makes a film like Dunkirk and for our show a particularly I don't know tricky, interesting one because Dunkirk is a movie that was made to be seen in an IMAX theater specifically, and the the way they designed the film was kind of saying, "Listen, you need to see this in IMAX, and if you see it anywhere else, I mean, that's fine for you, I guess, but that's not what we've made it for, and you're losing something in any other format that you see it in." And that's basically the approach he's taken ever since, like the Dark Knight, as as long as he's had money to be. Uh, money to be able to make his films that way yeah which i have to say is like i get it because you do i i understand that you want to optimize your optimal experience um like i i i totally get that i don't really love the seeming disdain for the home theater experience that yeah some of his statements have had like a lot of people 
not only is there an accessibility issue, right? Like not everyone can go to the theater and not everyone can afford to go to the theater, but also it just seems like the longevity of your movies is going to be in home theaters. Like yeah. once a lot of people get born after your movie comes out and don't you want those people to watch your movies and enjoy them? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. Uh, no surprise, the Stream It podcast about streaming videos at home uh, takes a stance that we think, you know, films should be good when you stream them at home. But um, I just think that's that's a pretty clear thing. Like, I think that's a, uh, a design choice to, to, you know, this idea of making something so that it can be good in the theater and then still also be good in in the home viewing experience, maybe in a different way. And the same way that you might design a logo so that like you can recognize it at 50 feet away and it still, you know, holds up when it's at two feet away. Um, mm-hmm. That that philosophy, I think, holds up. I get what he's doing, though, and I, I get this like spectacle of the movie theater approach to a film. It just uh, I don't know. It makes some things hold up a little bit worse and i think that this is the first film that we've watched for the podcast where i really felt the degradation in quality between what would have been on the theater uh, in the theater versus what i saw on on the screen at home uh i had the same experience with dune that's the other one i was thinking in my mind but you know i i don't know i really enjoyed watching dune um when i watched it but it might have been particular to my experience at that moment sure um, I, I think a lot of it is like the perceived and, you know, I never talked to Christopher Nolan. All I've done is read quotes, but it's sort of the way those quotes come off to me is as if he doesn't really care about it is what irks me. If the statement was more like, you know, look, in order to optimize for this one experience, we had to make sacrifices elsewhere and it sucks, but it's ultimately what we decided to do, then I'd kind of have no issue. But it sort of just seems like it that isn't the feeling. It's more that he just doesn't care rather than it sucks, but he chose to sacrifice it or the team chose to sacrifice it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And just to be clear, I really like Christopher Nolan and his movies. So oh, is, yeah, I think we both uh, Overall, not like a, uh, I, I get it. I'm criticizing one aspect of how he builds his movies. And, you know, I'd like them to consider that a little bit more. But overall, big fan. I'm going to go see Oppenheimer in the theater. And I I don't plan on missing a Christopher Nolan movie um, if it's available to watch. Yeah, I should have listened to my good friend Evan Foss. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> For sure. Um, I know we've got a lot of actors to run down here which we can do pretty quickly but i guess i'll let you mention the other person we have on our list though um the next person that i wanted to mention on the list is a big surprise the cinematographer for this film uh Mm -hmm. van hoidema and you know this is one that the cinematographer we just had to talk about because if you are making a list of the top five cinematographers in the world right now, this guy is on that list. It's like Hoyt van Hoytema and Roger Deakins. And, you know, there's, there's some other folks on the list, but those are the two like auto includes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's done a lot of films with Christopher Nolan, but he's also worked with a lot of other people. So just going through quickly his, his filmography, um, he did, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, which won a BAFTA for Best Cinematography. 
he did the movie Her. He did with Spike Jones. He did Interstellar with Christopher Nolan. Also BAFTA nominated. He did Spectre with Sam Mendes, the James Bond film. He did Dunkirk, which was nominated for the Academy Award and the BAFTA. He also did Ad Astra, which was that that Brad Pitt, uh, Brad Pitt, uh, space travel movie that I never watched, and I don't know anyone that has watched it. And then uh, Tenet and Nope with Jordan Peele, and he's also doing the upcoming film Oppenheimer. So a wide range in a career that's been a. I mean, essentially about 10 years long. He was doing a little bit of work before that, but all on smaller things. So it's essentially a 10, 12 year uh, 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 career of just hit after hit with incredibly photographed films. Yeah, and I've seen a good amount of these films on here. I've seen The Fighter. I've seen Her. I've seen Spectre. Uh, They were all long enough ago that I don't particularly remember the cinematography but nope was just this year and when i i think both of us i guess we'll talk about this probably for our next episode like when i left the theater i was just like i the way that movie was shot was just so unbelievable to me blew me away yeah yeah it's uh, absolutely phenomenal um and hoyt von hoitema just has he has a very unique approach to cinema and cinematography as well. He, and it fits in with the Christopher Nolan thing. I mean, basically he's done a lot of work with other people, but it's basically based off of his Christopher Nolan work and essentially Chris Nolan recommending him to other people for projects that have a similar ethos, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does. So the, both of them have this approach that they really like the IMAX camera. And the film Dunkirk was filmed, 75% of the film was filmed in in IMAX cameras. That is a, <laughs> that's a lot. Like, that is so much of a film. Usually a film that uses IMAX camera, that they're like, this film was made for IMAX because it used the IMAX cameras. And it's like 15% of the film was filmed in IMAX. So Dunkirk is just a massive amount that they, that they were making. And the thing with the IMAX cameras is they're so big and so heavy and so noisy that it makes it just not very useful for filming most kinds of scenes. So the way that most people will use the IMAX camera is they'll use it for the particularly like wide shots with a lot of action going on, and they'll film those kinds of things and then just film a bunch of other 65mm things that aren't IMAX in order to fill in the rest of the gaps of the film. Um... The Hoyt van Hoytema and Chris Nolan approach is the opposite. They build the film for IMAX from the start, and they fill in anything they can't do with IMAX. They fill in with other cameras. Uh, yeah, and I think I think it's kind of been a white whale for the two of them. And I think I saw or heard that they finally did it with Oppenheimer. I think Oppenheimer is finally a hundred percent IMAX. I I haven't read that, but that would be cool. Um, I, I think I'm not lying on the podcast. I guess someone will tell us if I am, but I think I heard that somewhere, yeah. I don't know. I'm going over and looking right now, and it looks like it doesn't quite hit uh, 100%, but it does oh. use it's 100% IMAX or alternate 65 millimeter, which is similar to what they did here Got with it. Dunkirk. 
So what what it refers to with 65 millimeter, that is the width of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you see a film and you see the aspect ratio, you, when you're looking at something on your TV, usually you're looking at an aspect ratio that's like uh, one point. Um, let's see. What is it like a one point eight to one? Is that is that accurate? I'm I'm drawing a blank here at the moment. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm going to so, trust you. So you have these films that are normally put together in. Oh no no no! I'm I'm incorrect. So usually in a two point two uh, aspect ratio ratio film. So about twice as long as it is tall, and that's the way that most films are put together. Or the best comparison for that kind of size is it's close to the size of your phone. So when you turn your phone sideways, you're looking mm-hmm. at that kind of aspect ratio. The IMAX films, they use these 65 millimeter um, film, which is a very wide aspect ratio or a very wide film. But what the IMAX does is it also uses more more distance on top of it to create a a less wide aspect ratio and a closer to square aspect ratio. It's still like the the big like full IMAX experience is still a 1.4 to 1 ratio. Uh, mm. But it's much closer to square than what you're going to see on your typical television made today or on your phone. And the idea is by using such a huge print of film. So it's the 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 film that you're putting this on is still as wide as your massive widescreen picture. But because it's also taller, you can fit so much more into the frame and you get um, the maximum resolution as you can possibly get on on the screen i mean it makes sense right it's why it just feels like the screen is so jam-packed with so much stuff yeah yeah and so much detail too like it uh, it just feels expansive it feels huge it it feels huge and uh when you have just like a, a guy in the middle of the frame it feels like they're just being swallowed up by everything around them yeah um for this film, they they did like incredible stuff with the IMAX camera. They stripped down these cameras to like as little as they could possibly have, so that they could use an IMAX like a handheld camera. Normally, you have to have them on a crane, but they're mm-hmm. they're using an uh, like a handheld handheld's the wrong word. It's a massive piece of equipment that goes over your shoulder and like hangs over your back, uh, like seventy percent of the way down your back that you're carrying around. But they they use that on the boat, so they're going around with these massive IMAX cameras. They attach IMAX cameras to the side of the planes, and they're they're using original like old World War II planes in this film as well. And they're just you know bolting an IMAX camera and trying to fly around with this extra three hundred pound camera just hanging off the side of it. They build a six hundred pound underwater IMAX camera, so uh, which has all the like water protection in it, and because. Like, that's too big for a person to really carry. But once it got in the water, the buoyancy kind of made it so it only felt like it was, like, 200 pounds for a camera. Hmm. Um, and that's how they filmed all the underwater sequences. But it's it's massive, and you really feel it in this film. Yeah, and I think they basic the contraption that they got to rig the camera to the planes, they basically invented for this movie, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they basically invented... Hoyt van Hoytema invented the idea of the handheld IMAX camera beforehand <laughs> in Interstellar, but they they kind of 
took what was there and that was they advanced it like tremendous like 10 times as far for dunkirk yeah makes sense so yeah it's i mean they're basically taking the the imax camera and then inventing all kinds of new ways to use it to put together these films yeah pretty cool so i guess we should go on to the other folks in the cast there's a whole bunch of them yeah we don't have to spend a ton of time on any of them we've gone pretty long here in the opening but uh we have jack loudon in this who i recently just saw in benediction which came out this year and then he's also in the apple tv show uh slow horses uh okay. there's a a little known name of harry styles uh well, that making guy. his his actor debut here in this film yeah people really liked him in this film too yeah, and then I, I guess he was able to use this to launch a successful pop career, as I understand it. <laughs> but yes, that's I, I think that's the sequence of events. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I guess the reason he got cast in this film, like the reason Christopher Nolan took a chance on him, was that he thought he looked, period. <laughs> he thought he looked <laughs> like he was someone who would exist in world in World War II times, and so he took a chance on him. I mean, and... I I think he's right too. It's he he seemed seemed to me like he filled fit in in the world of the film. Yeah, there's been a lot of Harry Styles discourse lately. I mean, with all the "Don't Worry, Darling" stuff, but I I don't think I knew that he had was in Dunkirk. So I was yeah, I was pretty surprised. No, Barry Keoghan is in is in this movie as well. Who uh, I'm wasn't familiar with before this year, but you and I both saw him and adored him in banshees of inishirin he was also in eternals playing druig um, oh they're both in eternals uh, i guess yeah. maybe that's a spoiler for the end of eternals <laughs> uh, <laughs> oops um yeah okay. and very very token was uh i loved him in internals he was i thought he did a great performance so i loved him in banshees as well so yep for sure he's great in this movie a uh, little known actor called mark rylance who just does a million movies i thought he had won a bunch of oscars but i guess he's only won one and then he's won three baftas but you talk about an actor who has just worked consistently and transforms himself in basically every role that he does and that's mark rylance he also has a very long stage career Yes. Specifically in Shakespearean plays. And so, the, you know, just a ton of that. Yeah. And then finally, who I had to ask you who he was in the movie, because <laughs> I couldn't, <laughs> well, I couldn't recognize anybody, but we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, Tom Hardy, Venom. Yeah, is in this Tom movie. Hardy. Uh, Tom Hardy is a Chris Nolan staple, as are a lot of these guys. Um, yeah. Well, not so many of the ones that we covered, but Tom Hardy is in a lot of his films. Um Tom Hardy is the guy that you never see his face and you can't understand a word that he says. And he plays that part in this film. If you didn't know he was there, I don't know that I don't know that I would know either. Um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. There's also but a the few other was, was I couldn't even figure it out through process of elimination because I didn't know anybody <laughs> else either. Yeah, for sure, for sure. There's also Cillian Murphy, who's a um a, right a Chris Nolan staple and you know an actor uh, a small time actor named Kenneth Branagh who apparently you know just shows up to be the commander for five lines and be you know iconic looking face that's the the face of England I guess Mm-hmm. yeah I mean once you're at the I mean and 
it's the same thing for Oppenheimer, right? Once you get to this status, you can just be like, yeah, I want to have all my awesome friends in, in my movie. And they're going to be like, yeah, I'm down for that. Yeah, let's do it. You give me three lines. I'll, I'll come in and do something and I'll leave. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, we have a stream it crossover here. Oh, stream it crossover. Yeah. So this is... we. I kind of thought when we started the podcast, there would be a lot more crossovers, but they seem to come up a lot less frequently than I expected, which maybe means we're succeeding in choosing a good variety of movies, or maybe it, there's just a lot of people in the world. I don't know. That that might be it. So, but I think it's the this, first one. We're really smart. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it has to yeah, be that one. For sure. The crossover we have, of course, is legendary composer Hans Zimmer who we also covered for for Dune and longtime collaborator with Christopher Nolan just one of the most respected and one of the largest filmographies for a film composer he just works all over the place yes and this score in particular is for Hans Zimmer fans, this is one that's particularly well regarded. Though I have to be honest, I could, don't know that I would recognize... Like, I don't know that this score stood out to me at all in this film. But I think that's a good quality for this film in particular. I don't know. Um, I had the same experience, but on rewatch, I noted... Like, when I was rewatching scenes, I noticed it a lot more. And I was like, oh, yes, that is extremely effective here. And I think that's kind of what he's good at. He's not an anthemic writer in the vein of John Williams or uh, like he, he, he doesn't frequently have melodies that I'm like, oh, yes. But it's more like playing with the soundscape and in interesting and inventive ways that I think are just always extremely effective i agree i think he's an excellent he does excellent work and the one thing that i do remember for this one is he apparently so there's a lot of like ticking clock noises in the score mm -hmm. in this one uh which were recorded directly from chris nolan's wristwatch oh that's um, really cool yeah so which is kind of interesting i wish i'd known that going in so and now if you go back and listen to these you're going to hear all these all that ticking noise, and you'll know that's Christopher Nolan's. That's what Christopher Nolan hears on his watch. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Should we move into any advice or insight for anyone watching this for the first time? Yeah, let's move into advice and insight. I think the main thing that I would say first, like just off the bat, is you you kind of just got to see it on the biggest screen that you can, um, mm -hmm. because the the quality of the experience deteriorates so quickly the smaller your screen gets so this one is worth i don't know it's as big put it on the big tv and don't just sit and watch this on your phone in bed yeah wait wait until you can do it on a tv and if you've got a friend with a home theater setup or a nice nice setup then yeah, yeah. try try and schedule it I'm probably in like one sitting. Uh, I watched it in two sittings that disrupted the experience dramatically. So I, th I think putting in one is a lot better for this film. Yeah, I would agree. I did it in one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got... <laughs> this is... 
I, I do have one little def I'm, I'm gonna do uh, stream it first I'm gonna read a nice little uh, definition off of miriamwebster.com and the reason for this will become apparent do you know what I'm gonna read I don't but I'm excited yeah so uh, this is the word M-O-L-E, mole. And this is the fourth mm -hmm. definition. And the definition is a massive work formed of masonry and large stones on earth laid in the sea as a pier or breakwater. Right, yes. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about that once we get into reaction, but <laughs> I wish I had known that going into this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't know, but I kind of... Like, I kind of figured it out, but, uh, yeah, you should know what a mole is, apparently. Yeah. And then, I don't know if you have anything else before content warning. I was thinking, I, if you don't have anything else, I was going to basically give a synopsis of the movie, or of the major events, because I think this is a movie where the how it happens is a lot more... I think the movie kind of assumes that you know what is going to happen and then it's expecting you to come along for the emotional journey of how it happens. That, but that's I do accurate want based on interviews. Out. So based on the interviews, they just kind of, they were expecting people to go into the film with a basic knowledge of the Battle of Dunkirk. Like not yeah. the entire thing, but it's the kind of thing that, especially in England, the story of Dunkirk is known so well that they just assumed everybody would know know that history and uh, get how this fits into the context. Um, the one thing I wanted to add, though, um, is that there's basically there's very little talking in this film. Um, mm -hmm. There, the there's so few lines, and that was deliberate for kind of two reasons. You know, one is to make it feel like a loss of identity from all the people in the war, but also for practical reasons, the IMAX cameras are extremely loud. And they had to recreate basically all of the sound for this entire mm. film in the in ADR uh, afterwards. So oh, everything you're hearing is created after the fact in ADR. Oh, well, I didn't notice any of it. So I think that's a pretty, I guess their mouths are covered for a lot of it. But Right, yeah. I, th yeah. I mean, I think they did an excellent job with the sound design, to be, yeah. to be, to be honest. It's... Uh, so did the it, oscars yeah exactly that's it, it, once i read that that's just incredible but it's just those imax cameras are so loud you can't basically take anything that you got from the set yeah um cool so i'm gonna run down the story here quickly and if you don't want that then turn this off but i think you should want it because i think it'll make it a lot easier so basically the germans <laughs> i get Maybe, Matt, correct me if I mess this up. The Germans had pushed the British as well as some of the French and I think some other allies as well. Into the Dutch and the Belgians. The Dutch and the Belgians into basically a corner on in Dunkirk. And they were stuck on this beach and there was basically no chance of survival and everyone felt <laughs> like they were just dead and it happens a little bit in the movie but there is some surprise of like why aren't we getting rescued where's the air force where's the navy like we're here we're supposed to be able to get out and eventually it becomes clear that it's just impossible do you remember what the number is i think it's like three hundred thousand, right 
Were they evacuated? Yeah. Yeah, like 338. Yeah, 338. That sounds right. Yeah, so 338,000 people stranded on this beach. No way to get off. Only one very little port in. And essentially they commandeer a bunch of civilian boats to ferry people off little boat by little boat by little boat. Yeah. And yeah, that's it. That's basically the story. Um, And, you know, Dunkirk in particular is like, you know, you can see England from Dunkirk on the uh, over there on the shore. And um, so historians disagree on how like essential the Battle of Dunkirk was to the war. And if if this evacuation had not happened as successfully as it had whether England or whether Germany just would have won the war on the spot. There's disagreement on that, but that's the mythology behind the battle of Dunkirk. That even though it was a failure that because of the amazing success of England's organized evacuation, that it was the turning point in the war to stop the Nazi advance and make it so that not that, that, that Germany didn't just outright win the war. So that's kind of the way people talk about it. Yeah, we can. Yeah, we can give content warnings here. I think all of the content warnings are pretty obvious, though. Like if you're if you're it's a war movie. So (laughs) everything that comes with a war movie is going to go in for this movie. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of war stuff going. Um, It's not it's not quite as graphic of uh, violence as something like Saving Private Ryan, but there is a lot of drowning. So, you know, that's, that's, and like people uh, getting caught on fire as they're drowning. That's fun. But that's basically what it's, it's, it is what it is. You're getting what you you expect when you come into this one. Yeah. Uh, shall we break and come back? Let's break and come back. All right. See you on the other side. <laughs> Right. Welcome back to the back half of the show. We're going to spoil the movie. We're going to talk about, I guess I already spoiled the movie in the front half, but now we're going to spoil our reactions if you wanted to see it without knowing what we thought about the movie. To be fair, um, this movie's pretty spoiler proof. You know, a movie about one of the most well-known events of the of the 20th century. You know, what is there to spoil? Yeah, I, so well-known that if you like didn't know what the event was you probably shouldn't be on a podcast talking about the movie no i think that's great we should we should have you on for exactly that insight um yeah so i guess i'll go first here and yeah unfortunately this movie didn't work at all for me like i spent the entire movie having no idea what was going on and I think a lot of it was I think it was a confluence of a lot of things a lot of which was me I think it's lack of historical knowledge on my part a lot of it is the aphantasia especially when I was re-watching it's like those first two characters that you see they look the exact same to me I could not pick them out of a lineup their hair is the same and then because it's a war movie everyone's wearing the same thing and so the 
two people you're introduced to first look the same. Their costumes are the same. None of them say anything. So you can't even try and recognize them by voice. Yeah, I mean, I had a hard time recognizing characters in this film, and I don't have aphantasia. Yeah. And then you throw in the wrench that the first, like, title card you have is the mole, which I had no idea there was a geography, like, a landmark meaning to that word. So literally, I spent the first 55 minutes of the movie thinking that uh the two of them were german spies working together and it wasn't until i think 55:30 someone else has a line where they refer to the mole on the beach and oh, no. then it finally clicked into place to me and i was like oh i am <laughs> i am such an idiot so unfortunately i just wasted all of this mental energy trying to catch up and figure out what the hell was going on for the first two-thirds in the movie which uh is rough that's that's a rough place to be and i think a lot of it is me but on rewatch like i i was sort of mum when you mentioned that this movie deserved the editing and i think like in some ways that's true there is a feat of editing here but i also think like there is not really a cleanliness of storytelling going on in a lot of this movie and we'll get into into it but i think there was a lot of places where he expected you to make leaps that even if you knew the movie even if you knew the story and knew what was going on i think i think it was just mistakes like i i think it expected you to fill in too many blanks yeah i would i I hesitated to call it a mistake because He's doing this weird thing with where he's taking three different timelines and trying to blend them together to all resolve at the same time. And so they make a lot of editing choices in order to make that work. Um, Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I don't think that a lot of it. I think that a lot of it is very confusing and it's very difficult to tell what's even going on. I think that's kind of goal they were going for so i don't know that it was i don't know that it's going against i think that part of the confusion is that they wanted to make you feel like you're a soldier on the battlefield you don't know what's going on and yeah all of that kind of stuff so i hesitate to call it a mistake but for me um it definitely makes it a lot harder as a, to watch as a story and i think that if you're watching it in the movie theater the just incredible images that you're seeing kind of balance that out but watching that at home it doesn't it doesn't do that as well i mean i still found a lot of it like pretty impressive to look at uh but yeah yeah, i I assume it was not the overwhelming thing that it would have been in the theater i have a couple examples i could cite where i think it was like particularly sloppy that doesn't overlap with any of our scenes but i don't know if this is the best place to do it what do you think um I think we can talk about it, but how about I give my reaction first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Why don't you do that? Um, So my reaction was, I I think that I liked it a lot more than you did, but also a lot less than I was expecting to. Um, Mm. I had really high hopes coming into this one, and then, I don't know, I got frustrated with the film. I had texted you about it and said, apparently we're just doing only Act 3 of the movie, Um, because 
the assumption is just that you know the stakes of Dunkirk and like all the lead up to this, and then all they're showing is like the big battle scene at the end of the movie, and that's just the whole movie in this one. Um, there's a lot of I agree with this the lack of structure to the story. I got lost so many times uh, in what was happening, and part of that I think was deliberate, and part of it was just like it's a confusing story when you try to overlap three differently timed timed timelines and i don't think it quite paid off in the end because like you get by the time you get there you're like oh this is all so that at the moment that you know they're hopping on the boat when the boat arrives they're like in the water um you know needing to be rescued and then the plane flies over and shoots the other one you know just to time it all at that same time so it all pays off but It didn't, that quite didn't quite work for me. And then additionally, just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have that scene, so we'll talk about that when we get there. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that one. But um, it also just, I don't know, maybe it's that we watched this after RRR and like all the British people getting murdered. Um, It's not just, it's not just that. It's also that we watched this in the year that Top Gun Maverick came out. Oh, yeah, which is sure too. which is just not fair. Like it is just um, not fair. <laughs> it's the way this film like approaches the like it just banks on this idea of British heroicness. Um, sure, and like, hey, yeah. England is awesome, and all, British people are the greatest. And mm-hmm. I don't know. There's there's some things that it does to kind of counteract that, but there's a lot of that that I was like, oh really? Like <laughs> I don't know. I was expecting to like the movie, and then there were so many things that threw me off that it ended up being very middling and essentially my least favorite Christopher Nolan film that I've seen. Um, I'd probably. I guess I haven't rewatched The Dark Knight Rises. I'd probably still put it over Dark Knight Rises, but. I mean, again, both of these situations are just like, I came in with such high expectations. And then yeah. what the movie was, was not what I expected at all. So probably um, I just liked Dark Knight Rises a lot more than you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both of them I should do a rewatch on. I'm not going to rewatch Dunkirk anytime soon, but uh, at some point I probably will. Yeah. Makes uh, sense. But a lot of the scenes that I rewatched were a lot more enjoyable because I could enjoy the craft without having to just like try and figure out what was going on and the one of the things is like if i had not been watching this for the podcast i would have googled the plot synopsis but because i was doing it for the show i wanted to kind of have as pure a reaction as i could well on the same lines for me i was part of what was confusing is i was expecting the film to tell more of the story of dunkirk and it doesn't like it's 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 that's all background like the story of what's happening the story is just these two guys that are on the beach and you know the two guys on the boat and the two guys in the it's individual stories and it's only getting those individual perspectives and it's not really interested in the history of the event what was any of the discourse that you read about it were any of the reviews like this is made for brits and america like this isn't made for americans yeah, that's a, a lot of the reviews were saying that. Oh, okay. So, Interesting. I don't yeah. remember that from any of the discourse, but I also wasn't really plugged into it, obviously. So Yeah, it's I didn't remember it either, but it wasn't until I went back and re- read through a bunch of those reviews. Essentially that, like, uh, you know, 
Brits loved it so much because they get what's going on and Americans are lost and, uh, you know, oh, well, they can learn the stuff and catch up. Yeah. Should I mention my couple of faux pas here that I yeah, that let's do it. were issues? It, normally it would come in cleanup, but because I mentioned it already, I think we can do it here. Um, so the first one is that moment near the end of the movie where Mark Rylance's character does something to trick to get the like bad plane shot down do you remember this moment and they're like how did you know how to do that and oh yeah 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 and he says well my son used to be a fighter pilot or something like that yeah he turns the boat uh in order to avoid getting shot oh is that is that what happens yeah he just he dodges the shot is all Okay. Like, I just had no idea what occurred. <laughs> the, yeah. And I can't chalk because nothing happened. Like, all I can chalk that up to is editing. Like, I just needed better visual storytelling at that moment. No, it, it makes sense. It's it's hard to figure out what's going on there. Not only that, but they showed the other side of it from the airplane like 30 minutes earlier. And so, okay, yeah, I mean, yeah. it makes sense to me that as you're watching it, you're like, wait, did he do, do? Is this going on? Is that connected to that one? But yeah, I don't know. Like that, uh, I agree with that. Um, so that was one of them, and then the other one, I didn't rewind to see if I had just like misunderstood. But there's that moment when they're all floating in the water at night, mm-hmm. and the boat, the whoever's on the boat is like, you have life jackets. Just hang out here. We'll come back and get you. Yeah. But then they're at the end of that scene. They're just getting pulled along by the boat. So I'm like, what just happened? Didn't they just tell them to hang out in this ocean? And then they ended up just dragging them back with them anyway? Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. So I don't know what to tell you on that one. I don't know. Any of the like we've talked a lot about being able to play catch up on the podcast and any of those things are like those are just tiny things. But when I'm already just like struggling to catch up. And I mean, it's Christopher Nolan. Like, it's the he's a storyteller who we expect to not have those sorts of things in his movies because his movies are so complicated, right? Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I agree. I think that some of it is that he was embracing the idea of the chaos of of what's uh, the chaos of war. Um, is kind of the yeah. the argument, but I don't know. And some of that might be like the the aesthetic that he was in for the dark Knight was the perfect aesthetic for me. So that's why it rode that seesaw perfectly. And this one, because I just didn't come in with the correct information, just wasn't able to ride that seesaw for me. And if you had that information, maybe it would. Yeah. There was another scene that when I watched it, I immediately thought of you as like, this is going to make no sense to Zach. Um, The part where they pull like the soldiers out of the water and he's hanging on to oh. one soldier and he's like in the water and he's got oil over his face and then he turns and the water like washes it off and you see it's the main guy we've been like following the whole time i was like, like oh okay i, well, I could barely recognize reveal? it yeah that's that reveal that that's that's the main character we've been following he's mm. the one with all the oil on his face oh wow it just worked for me just now i finally got it. <laughs> there he goes so surprise that was that scene i had a feeling that it just went over your head so it yeah it did unfortunately oh well i mean these sorts of things like i generally am able to mitigate them by watching movies with mary by watching movies with my wife and being like who's that who's that who's that 
but uh, that only works if she's actually watching the movie and she wasn't interested in this one. So I had no such lifeline. Yeah. Mm, there you go. Um, I mean, mostly I've been crapping on this movie so far, but like it looks amazing and it does. the the visual stuff and we didn't say it at, at the front, but like the vast majority of what you see is practical effects and they worked really hard to get practical effects. And Christopher Nolan said like, even when he's watching the film, he doesn't, he can't remember where the difference is between what they did practically and what they did um, with CG. Well, additionally, all of this, everything, every scene contains practical effects. Yes. Some of the, some of the scenes are slightly and only minimally enhanced just to, to what was completely not possible to do practical at all uh, is slightly enhanced by the, by the digital effects. So, uh, there's a few things with like um, like some fire effects and a few things of like, you know, the planes to make it a little bit clearer, you know, things like that. But they're all small things that are enhancements of the practical stuff that they already have. Yeah, I read that they did one where in order to get a shot of a plane going down from the plane, they literally just crashed the plane with the camera on it and yes. then had to retrieve the camera afterwards with divers. Yeah, correct. So... which (laughs) it's one of those things where you kind of just wish they could like pause the movie and be like oh yeah by the way how we did this because it would you'd be so much more impressed but for sure well the other thing with the filming of it is that it's all on not only is it practical it's all on location like that's done that's where it happened uh they had to rebuild the mole for the for the film but otherwise like that's it and they went and got the actual spy? planes um yeah that's fine um they got actual planes they brought in actual ships like from from world war Two that were still in existence and brought them in to film off of i mean it's it's crazy oh yeah the the fidelity is is great in this movie the yes it's very authentic the the debates of like the historicity of it is interesting because like well yeah it's all accurate but also it does nothing to tell you any about anything about the history so like is it authentic (laughs) yes but is is it historically accurate like it's it's not there's no history in it so no um i I found that conversation interesting that makes sense um the other thing i did want to ask you maybe you understand this we'll have no cleanup because we'll have covered it all at the top of the thing um so what what is the reason that this mole is safe because they have that opening sequence where i guess let's just talk about the first scene and i'll ask this question in it yeah so in the scene to start off the way the film starts off is you've got this like small group of soldiers that are walking through i guess that's the city of dunkirk i'm not sure exactly the geography here um but they're walking through trying to make it their way to where the allies are set up and there's some like newspapers or not newspapers flyers floating in that are from the german forces saying hey uh, surrender or whatever it is they're saying and then there's a firefight you got this whole squad gets taken out except for our one guy that's uh what's even this kid's name his name is uh tommy but we never find that out because they basically never say his name and i think it shows up like on a patch somewhere one time uh so 
Tommy is like running for his life down the alleys and he ends up making it to a barricade that the British have set up uh, and is able to to make it past the lines. And he arrives on the beach there at Dunkirk. Um, He wanders around aimlessly for a few minutes, just kind of there with these massive lines of soldiers just like standing there at the beach. And he eventually goes over and tries to find a place where he can, you know, take a shit. Um, and there's somebody burying like a dead body or something next to him. And he goes and help. Does he help him? I can't remember even. I don't know. Yeah, he, he helps him. And then the other guy offers him some water, I think. Yeah, offers him some water. And then they're apparently, I didn't realize this until like 40 minutes in, but apparently they're going around as buddies for the rest of the film. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize that, but the, they're, they're together through the rest of the film. I don't know if you knew that, but I didn't know that. Uh, yes, that I picked up on because I thought oh, they were, I thought they were both spies. I thought, oh, oh right, right. Was, I thought what the movie was telling us here was that our main guy, Tommy, was seeing him bury someone and then it shows the shot of his shoes off. Yeah. And so I thought it was telling us he stole his uniform, which did turn out to be true. And the reason our guy doesn't question it is because he also had done that. And so Mm. I thought it was telling us this like infiltration story. And in retrospect, like I have no idea what we were supposed to get from any of this interaction. I don't understand what we were supposed to get from him starting to go to the bathroom and then not going to the bathroom and then this wordless exchange between the two of them and the acceptance like i it just still makes no sense to me i think what they're going for is the guy is so like traumatized that he sees someone like uh like burying a dead body um he's like "Eh, whatever like um but you think that's kind of the idea the no shoes like you see him clock that he stole the uniform yeah, I don't know. So, it's weird. Um, I'm but to be fair, I'm so sad. He's going to be like, why did I ask them to do this movie? <laughs> but to be fair, I didn't understand uh, why they did the, like, the whole uniform taking thing either. I was like, oh, poor guy died and he doesn't even have any boots. And so, like, I didn't get that. Oh, uh, the uniform. So, I was ahead of so you on that one. You were ahead of me on that one. Yeah. So, and that's when the commercial hurt break hit. And then. Yeah, perfect um, so... spot for it. <laughs> so, can you imagine in the IMAX theater, like the commercial break hitting at that point? Just yeah, like, like a, a three-minute commercial break. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, anyway, Hulu, there you go. Uh, so then they're like running around the beach, and now this part we get to that I actually adored. I thought this was really good. Is they're like oh, uh, yeah. moving through the beach, and all of a sudden these bombers start coming in. And there's this incredible shot, just blows me away, where he hits the ground. Everybody hits the ground because the bombs are coming in. And you see the IMAX camera with its huge aspect ratio that just is so tall and can show so much depth to the mm-hmm. to the scene. And we see the bombs that are, that are dropping one by one by one as they're approaching right in line with Tommy's head. And then the sound design on this, where each of these bombs sounds a little bit closer. They're not only getting louder, but they're changing in pitch as they get closer so that you can feel like that bomb is getting closer and closer. And then stops. The last bomb is, what, like 30 feet away from him and right behind his head. And you're seeing the sand blow up above. I mean, that shot is incredible and uh, just filming that and getting the 
getting that to be so precise with the explosions and the way the plane is flying and the way that it's shot and the angle and the intimacy of what's shown on his face that's combined yeah. with the juxtaposition juxtaposition of these bombs that are approaching incredible shot and, and that's I think what... what i want to talk about this part but go ahead sorry what seals the deal for me on that shot is when the sand land like all of it feels Mm -hmm. kind of fake until the sand lands on his face and it just feels so heavy i don't know if they do like just a very tiny camera shake when it happens but it's just like oh that's really happening like that is and i can only imagine in the in the imax how the theater shakes with those yeah. explosions and then with yeah. the the sand landing yeah it's a great shot it, that is uh, an incredible shot and there there's a lot of really good shots in here it, like the shot of the flyers floating down while they're walking through the street i mean i turned it on that's the first shot that you get at the film and i was like oh i'm gonna love this film look at how beautiful that looks yeah um yeah i had the same and thing and then when he comes out like out of the streets and walks out and he sees the whole beach in front of him also incredible but and i cannot deny this film looks so beautiful like it is so incredibly well shot and that is undeniable one of the best photographs films that i've ever seen yeah yeah so you were asking about the mole though and how this part was safe uh i'm not sure what the question was though you were right so you get this opening where the planes are dropping bombs there but then they're going to stay on this beach for another week before they were saved. So why, like when I was reading about it, I think there was something about this one spot was the only safe spot for them to be. But I don't understand why the planes couldn't just like come back and keep dropping bombs on them. Like, I don't understand. Um, Okay, so I don't don't know the history of the battle well enough to really answer the question, but uh, from what I was able to piece together, so for one thing, the reason why they're all at this mole and at this part of the beach is because it's the only... So the mole is a place where they can load people onto boats, and it's the only one that goes far enough out that they can load the deep deep boats, the deep ships with people. So So a big part of it is... Yeah, a big part of it's not about safety. It's about being able to get to a place where you can get everybody on the boat. And so the defense around this mole was put up specifically with the perimeters put up that we saw in the city with the barricades and perimeters kind of on the sides of the beaches. But those are more open. They're they're more they're not as closed off. And the idea was just to defend that part of the beach, that stretch of the beach as well as they could until they could load as much as they could. And they are stressed about the planes dropping bombs on the boats and sinking a boat right at that mole, because if that happens, they basically can't load any ships. Right. Um, as far as like, how did they, what did they do about the, the planes coming in and bombing them? Um, nothing. <laughs> they have some, they just got lucky. Yeah. Well, it's not even that they got lucky. It's just, well, so part of it is that the the German air capacity wasn't as developed at this point of the war as it would be later on. So they don't have Got they it. can't just go in and uh, the Luftwaffe can't just come in and drop, you know, tons and tons of bombs. They have some ships that can go in or some planes that can drop things. Uh, there's also artillery shooting at them. So it's not like trivially easy to get a plane in there. It's just also not incredibly hard. 
but a big part of the problem that they were worried about is that uh, the RAF, the, the British Air Force, is not there to defend the beach. That's why they're like, where's the Air Force? What are we doing? And so there were bombs coming and dropping on them as this was going. It just was hard to get big enough bombs to sink all the big ships, though that does happen at one point. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which I was able to track that I was able to figure out. So, yeah, that's uh, uh, that's that. Got it. Uh, I have more questions, but they'll tie into our third scene. So we can talk about that when we get there. Cool. Um, the next scene that I wanted to talk about, or I guess the first scene that I wanted to talk about was the Mark Rylance introduction scene. And so this is essentially two scenes because the first one's really only 30 seconds where we see him uh and his son and what's barry keoghan's relationship to them he just works for them i don't know he... he just it never clarifies he's just he's just some kid i don't know yeah yeah we don't we don't really learn learn so we get introduced to them and i think this is like this was the storyline that I was able to latch on. The reason I wanted to talk about it is because this is the storyline that I was able to latch on to the most, I think probably for mm -hmm. obvious reasons. It's the only discernible characters to me in the entire movie. And so the this sequence where they're on the boat and you find out that the boat got requisitioned and then it cuts away for a little bit, but then it cuts back and you see them leaving and i think this is the only time that the movie makes an attempt to sort of deal with i don't want to say the stakes because the stakes i think are pretty clear but deal with like exactly what's going on and it's the moment when he <laughs> uh mark rylance says they've commissioned our boat but they're not going to get to do it without the captain and then his son says or his son, and then George jumps on the boat, and there's the... I think this is, like, intended to essentially be the end of the first act, but he's like, you know where we're going, right? And he says, yeah, we're going to Dunkirk, and he says, yeah, we're going into the war. And it was just, like, such a breath of fresh air to have some actual dialogue and some actual characters that I was able to latch onto. And I think that was probably the intention of these characters. And I think generally this entire storyline worked really well for me. Um, I was really wrapped up in Barry Keoghan and his death and the fact that like he really just wanted to help. And the like this movie is interesting in that there are no and no face you don't get faces for any antagonists right. obviously the pilot who has ptsd is going to kill this kid but also i think it's extremely understandable why he doesn't want to go back and why he you know you can't excuse killing the kid but he he's not himself at that moment he's in yes. shock um and, and well additionally he's and this is not to excuse the actions. He shouldn't have been like fighting with him and trying to, to do all that, but he knocks him down by accident um, and yeah. it ends up killing him. So yeah. And again, not to excuse the actions, but it's not the same thing as like uh, the, the antagonist that's in your face, like trying to murder you or something like the Nazis in this film that you just never are on screen. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a, it's sort of, it's similar to a man versus nature story, only the nature is Nazis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I don't know how I feel about uh, that exactly. I think that it adds a lot to the tension and just like the stress and probably is very accurate to the feeling of these people, like in the moment, what was going on, because so yeah. much of World War Two is like war fought in a distance where you can't see uh, the folks on the other side. At the same time, I think clarifying like that Nazis are bad. And they were the bad guys, especially in a time where you had, like, uh, the next week, you'd have Nazis uh, marching in the United States. You know, maybe showing that the Nazis were the bad guys could have been could have been useful in that regard. Yeah, I, I get it. I don't have, like, a ton of... I'm not... Like, he didn't know, you know? If he'd started filming this movie two years later, yeah. it would yeah. be a lot different. So, so I get it. I don't That's hold true. it against them. I agree. But yes, it's one of the reasons it does hit a little different. Yeah. So uh, I don't have anything else to say about the, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just, I don't know. The, these scenes are really beautiful in a very different way. But also part of what was complicated for me is the they're switching between the three different timelines. And the one on the beach takes a whole week. The one on the boat takes a day. And the one in the plane takes an hour but the weather is so dramatically different between them that you're cutting between scenes where it's like, um, they've got like all that, I don't know even what it was like foam or something blowing off the ocean and they're all freezing. And at the same time, it cuts to another scene where it's all bright and sunny and everybody's on the boats and it's like idyllic and peaceful and beautiful. And, um, (laughs) they're cut together. Like it's happening at the same time, but you know, they're a week apart. So yeah. And it, it, I didn't quite like I was pretty I I guess I would say I was like 70 to 75 percent sure we were dealing with alternate timelines based on the the captions but they were vague enough that I wasn't a hundred percent sure and so I spent a lot of like mental energy being like why is the weather different yeah. um and it I mean, being like oh, okay now I can tick it up to 80 percent sure that we're dealing with multiple timelines here yeah, it's I I knew that part ahead of time. I had heard that part in the discourse. So, yeah. but I still spent a lot of time saying, okay, so wait, where is this part in? Where does this line up? Are they on like the the second day of the week long thing? And how far are we into the hour and the day? So trying to line up all of that. Um, you that were was trying very to fit to the jigsaw puzzle, whereas I yes. was still like trying to figure out if there was a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, should we move on and talk about the next scene? Yeah, let's talk about the next scene. Yeah, we're kind of following the structure of the movie here. We started with the beach, and then we moved to the sea, and now we're going to talk about the the air. So, ostensibly, the scene that I wanted to talk about is the scene where the fuel gauge was broken. And so this... But also, I'm going to use this generally to talk about gener- the aerial scenes in this movie. Um, I just think this was a good example of where a lot of my issues came with the flying, with the flying sequences. Because what happens here is this comes right after a cut from the boat of Mark Rylance picking up the the fallen the fallen pilot, the guy who's going to eventually kill Barry Keoghan, and. Cillian Murphy. 
Um, <laughs> I don't know what his character's name is, but that's the actor's name. Yeah. And but what had happened aerially right before this was we had seen a previous them shoot down one of the enemy fighter pilots. And so I I'm oh, no. guessing this was intent. Hmm? Oh no. I think I can see where the confusion might be. Yeah, I'm guessing it was intentional. I'm guessing that you were supposed to think did they pick up one of the bad guys, which is what I thought and what I was spent some amount of time worrying about because then you don't it takes a little bit of time before you learn that one of their one of their pilots accidentally went down. And on on rewatch I think this might have been a me thing because on rewatch of these opening scenes, it did pretty clearly establish that there were three of them, but it just wasn't something that I was able to clock because I was too confused. So I never really was able to latch on to how many pilots we had. And so because they because I didn't latch on to that, and then because we didn't ever see our pilot go down, it just happened when they were talking talking to him and not getting a response that you were supposed to figure it out. And another point of confusion for me was because the first time they talked to their leader, it didn't show it didn't cut between the two of them or it didn't show the response immediately. I actually thought they were radioing with someone at base. So I didn't even realize until my rewatch that one of their crew had gone down because they didn't show it to us. And so it was just created this place where I just had to play too much catch up. And I also generally don't think that they did a very good job of ever introducing any of the enemy combatants. Like there was never, it never felt like as high stakes as it seemed like those moments should be. The, uh, the the like dogfighting part in particular yeah anytime yeah. an enemy plane came into view it just was like eh, there's another enemy plane i guess yeah. we'll try and shoot them down as opposed yeah. to because and also i still have some confusion of where those enemy planes were coming from because it feels like none of them should have been coming from the same direction that the allies were they always would have been coming directly at them so i don't even like none of that geography made any sense to me yeah um I, the the key thing to keep in mind is that the the plane part only takes only covers an hour right and they've cut it up into like 12 different segments that are all like 30 seconds long so you're getting right. you know you're getting like three to four minutes of plane stuff um in this entire movie that's covering an hour's worth of story and the so the planes the planes are flying across the the channel and then they start this dogfight with this other bomber relatively close to to Dunkirk and Got it. so there's only a like there's not very many planes in the first place they have like one dogfight with some uh with some uh Luftwaffe planes and then they and the one guy gets shot down um and then there's a bomber that they're chasing for the whole rest of the thing. So oh, it's uh, only one bomber that they're chasing. Yeah, it's one bomber that he's chasing for the whole rest of the movie. Um, so I think that actually answers my previous question of 
why were there no more bombs on the beach? And it's because these guys tracked them down. Yeah, that's kind of, well, in the last hour. Um, <laughs> you know, it's what what they were doing in the whole time previous because the RAF wasn't there that whole time. So, oh, right. Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So that's the other thing for me is because I had figured out like the timeline part uh, when that plane got shot down. I was like, yeah, but that's that's like the hour part. So that would be at the end of the day part. So that can't be the same guy. So like if you've got that timeline in your mind as you're going, you know, that the Cillian Murphy character, the shivering soldier can't be the guy that they shot down because it's not it's not even close on the timeline. But if you aren't 100 percent sure on that, I can see how that would be confusing. Yeah. Uh, and then I do think the the fuel gauge thing is probably just not like I get that it I guess it is necessary because you need a reason for him to stay on the beach at the end and to have that moment that he sacrificed himself but again that was pretty confusing to me part of it is like I just couldn't track who any of the pilots were because we didn't yep. get to see their faces and it didn't do a particularly good job of establishing them and uh, they don't have their voices are not clear at all because it's tom hardy mum mumbling into a mask right yeah yeah and then unfortunately i alluded it to it at the beginning of the movie but or the beginning of this section but all of this dogfighting was pretty anticlimactic and when i because we've seen Top Gun Maverick this year and it is just like <laughs> the yeah. speeds for that movie are like feel like they're a hundred times what this were. Was. Yeah, it it reminds me a lot of I've been watching in the past year a lot of films from around the time of, you know, the thirties, like wings or stuff like that. And it's very clear they're trying to evoke the same kind of style and using authentic planes. And the, the those dogfights are very similar in style to those. So if you're coming to it with an approach of like nostalgia for those old dogfights shown on, on cinema, I think there's a lot to appreciate it from that perspective. But at the same time, I, the, I felt like the air, the plane story was the weakest storyline of the film. Um, yeah. It, the stakes were essentially established as like, hey, there's this plane that's like, you know, going to blow people up and this guy's running out of fuel. And I think it's pretty obvious to me, like as soon as he's riding down his fuel, like, oh, he's going to run out of his fuel and crash. And it's surely going to be right in right after like he shoots down the bomb bomber and saves everybody. That's exactly what happens. Uh, so I don't know. I felt like that was the even though it should be the highest stakes thing in the film, it felt like the lowest stakes for right. me because yeah. it's just it's, the story of it is so simplistic with nothing to latch onto to connect with the characters that it's it's hard to i don't know it's hard to draw more from it than that yeah i i will say on rewatch when i was watching it i was not thinking about top gun maverick at all but on rewatch once i had like read about them pioneering this way to bring the cameras on the planes and i was able to put my brain back in this like oh, i have to think about how revolutionary this would have felt at the time even though it was only six years ago only five and a half years ago the scenes were a lot more effective i just wasn't expecting to have to do that 
with a movie that felt like it just came out. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. I don't know. Like even <laughs> I gotta say, even the first Top Gun, I felt like the the dogfights in that are. Re- I don't know how how much you remember of the first Top Gun, but like those those dogfights are pretty clear what's going on, and so I felt like this film the 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 dogfights were very uh, slow and idyllic and just kind of like oh look at the beautiful ocean and the planes shooting at each other. I didn't feel a lot yeah. of like tension over it. I mean, we did recently watch the first Top Gun over the pandemic was the first time I had seen it. And they were clear, but I did not ever feel like they were exciting. So it was kind of like a similar feeling for this one, which I know seems heretical because like these ones are shot on IMAX and they look amazing, but the, it didn't, the excitement level of both of them was the same, which was like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, I, I think I mostly, uh agree with that it's i mean it's still beautiful the the way that it looks oh yeah the the planes look like these authentic planes are original planes that are just repainted for the film that's that part's incredible they they look great it's just uh, i don't know i feel like the structure is the right word yeah that that's how a lot of it felt was idyllic when it should have felt like a dogfight yeah, like there's people dying and I'm like, look at the beautiful scenery as these people die. Right. Look um, how great the water looks. <laughs> exactly. So Which and it did. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's not even something to say is like necessarily a criticism. Maybe that's uh, the juxtaposition there is kind of the point of it, but it it's the story is a little bit harder to connect with. So Yeah. Uh, yeah. should we talk about our last scene here? Let's talk about the last scene. So uh All the right, last scene is, is um, this is once everybody's back and the timelines basically unlock at this point. And yeah. so that was nice to, to be able to just kind of be following the story. And essentially these soldiers all come back from Dunkirk and you have all these soldiers that we met along the way that are offloading and going about their going back to life or going back to being soldiers, whatever it is they're moving on with. And there are a few things that stood and stood out to me that I wanted to point out. So not necessarily in order, but one of them was the scene where Cillian Murphy, the shivering soldier that killed uh, Barry Kilgan's character, he's like getting off the boat and there's a chance where Mark Rylance could like call him out um, and do something uh, and like report him as as someone that killed um, George, killed Barry Kilgan. Yeah. And they have this moment where they look at each other and he basically lets him go. And I thought this one was a really interesting one of this idea that he understood and and and, and empathized with the the struggle that the soldier was going through and the panic that he was going through, and uh, made a choice not to not to report him, not to do something about that. Yeah, I think this moment works really well in tandem with the moment where his son also does the kind thing and lets him off the hook and lies to him and says that he's fine and that he's going to be yeah, fine. Exactly. And yeah, both of these moments were pretty emotionally impactful for me. Yes. I, I felt bad for Barry Keoghan, Um that, that he got, <laughs> he got like five lines and then got killed. And you know, I don't know. So that's sad. Mm-hmm. So the next one that stood out to me is you have uh, Tommy, Dion Whitehead's character. And then Alex, Harry Styles, 
where they're on like a train and oh, I loved this moment. Maybe yeah, my favorite so, moment of the movie. Yeah. So they're on this train and they're on their way back. Now we didn't see like a primary antagonist with the, the Nazis, but if there's anybody that was like the other antagonist, Harry Styles is the guy like he's, he does a lot of, I don't know, shady underhanded stuff uh, throughout, throughout the film, including, I don't know, some, some very, uh, he essentially tries to get the, the French guy murdered. Yeah, and all of that stuff. And for me, the most moral, morally despicable character that we see in the film was Harry Styles' character. They are sitting in a train car on their way, and Harry Styles' character, Alex, is kind of having a breakdown because he feels like I can't remember what it is exactly that he says, but something along the lines of "Everyone's going to think that we're cowards. They're going to think that we're failures because we had to come back from Dunkirk," and so. Tommy ends up getting a newspaper from this kid that's kind of coming by and he starts reading from the newspaper and the speech that they're reading is the Winston Churchill, we will fight on the beaches uh, speech mm -hmm. um, and classic speech that, uh, that uh, lots of people have probably heard. He's reading this as it's showing like a montage of different things and showing Alex's response as he's reading it and his sudden realization that they're coming home as heroes. That the the people saw the retreat not as a failure, but as you know, like uh, as success that honestly I think it probably would should be seen as uh, with evacuating so many so many soldiers. You said that you love this scene, so what's your thoughts on this one? Uh, well, the moment that I wanted to shout out, and it probably didn't hit you quite as hard because you don't have this same feeling, but that moment where a guy was running alongside the train and giving them beers through the <laughs> window. No, no, and that was great. It was just like, I, yeah, I was awed by the thought of it because it's like, yeah, we've all had, and honestly, probably pretty bad. They should probably drink water instead. But like, I just felt the moment of, God, I want a cold beer <laughs> so bad. I have been through seven days of hell including whatever additional war they had been through and th like thank the world for this guy just getting us these cold beers felt so cathartic and for sure. such a strange moment that I never would have thought of. Yes, the the details, are, there's so many amazing details in this film and that's one of those. The thing I thought was really interesting and I like this, but it's also just kind of like a lot to think about is this character that was pretty despicable in, in my opinion, Alex's character, not Harry Styles's character. Well, I didn't have that experience because I didn't know who he was. <laughs> I couldn't track any of them. <laughs> he did so many terrible things and then he's getting celebrated as a hero. Right. And so, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I think that's a really interesting idea. You have several places where you, uh, I've got these sirens going by everybody. You can hear that. But, a lot of the reviews about this uh, that were coming from the, the kind of far right side talking about this film and why they loved it. were like, it's showing the heroism of the, of the British and like real British people and how awesome we were and like how we won the war and uh, that we should get out of, it's a metaphor for getting out of France, all of these kinds of things. And watching this, I'm just yes. like, well, but that's not what it's saying. Like these soldiers do a lot of really terrible things and they're, 
I mean, they're not brave. They're cowardly as they're trying to escape, a lot of them, and they're just trying to survive. I can't blame them for that because of the circumstances they're in. They're, uh, it's terrible, terrible circumstances, and they are responding to the, to the ugliness and terribleness of war, and then people are viewing them as heroes unconditionally despite, with, despite what they have actually done that is in no means heroic. The, the heroic people are more the ones that, that did the rescuing rather than the ones that were rescued. And some of the, especially these ones that did these kind of terrible things on their way to trying to survive. I thought that juxtaposition was really interesting. And I think it essentially got swept away in the Brexit of the reviews. Mm -hmm. I, it's really interesting hearing you explain it. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I wish I had also had that experience. I uh, wish you'd also like even knew who the people were uh, when that was happening. Yeah. So that's okay. Um, that's all I've got to say about someday that. We'll record, someday we'll record an episode after we get to watch a movie in the same room. I don't know how long it'll be, but oh, someday that'll, be that'll great. happen. Yeah, that'll be great. Then you can just ask me who all the people are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's all I've got with this scene. Yeah. And I think I've covered all my cleanup. So whatever you've got, you should go for it and then we'll we'll close this bad boy up um let's see i think actually that uh, oh one other thing that i wanted to mention in that last scene there's this uh, there's this kind of thing where they take out a newspaper uh, or not a newspaper ad they put up an obituary for barry kilgan's character and talking they're talking about him as a hero um mm. and i thought that was interesting as well and i don't even necessarily disagree with the ex ethics of it but also he didn't do anything and no shade on his character, like he w wanted to go and help and all of that. But he goes, he's like two hours into the journey and he falls and dies. And, um, you know, then gets celebrated as a hero for rescuing people, even though his actions really didn't. I mean, he most, his body mostly got in the way. Um, I, yeah. I find that juxtaposition interesting. Yeah, I think the idea is like sailing a boat is hard and they did go through a storm at some point right so at that point any person on the boat helps so someone just being willing to risk their life for it for sure uh, um, and and you know it's also that that's how he wanted to be remembered and so like why why not why let him take it yeah why take that away like why 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 not give his family the comfort of that I, i'm fine with that happening but again i think it ties in with the juxtaposition of all this so yeah, that's all I really have for, for cleanup, though. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's go ahead and wrap this up. This is the end of season five. We haven't quite decided what we're going to do for season season six yet. Uh, we were sort of tossing around Apple TV+, Plus, but I don't know that there's quite enough movies on there for us to get a whole season out of it. So uh, as we've mentioned several times, we're going to have our 2022 movies in review the season in review podcast which will probably be the next one that shows up in your feed uh we've been colloquially calling it the streamies uh there's still time if there's a funny award you want us to give out to go ahead and reach out to us and let us know or just let us know what your favorite movie of the year is especially if it's a movie you think is unlikely to make it onto our top 10 um we'd be happy to happy to shout that out on that episode uh, and the way you can do that, the email is in the show notes, but just email us at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. 
And we'll probably fill in after that with a couple bonus episodes that we're sort of trying to work it work it all out. And on one of those, we'll have information about what our next streaming service is. Yeah. And so, uh, as you said, uh, any feedback on that also is helpful. We're, we're trying to think through it and decide and uh, where should we go? There's so many things to look at and who knows? We'll figure it out. Yeah, uh, that should come out. The goal is for that episode to come out about a week before or the week of the Oscars so people can listen to it leading up to the Oscars as a way to celebrate and talk about all the movies that came out last year. Uh, and of course, before we close, I do have to thank David Stewart, a.k.a. Estoriel, our good friend and also editor of the podcast and beta listener. So thanks, David. Thanks, David. And I think that'll do it for us. So we'll talk to you for for the streamies. Uh, streamies, here they come. Bye. Woo. Bye.